have not already turned there, I invite you to turn to the book of Jude. We are working our way through Jude, and we will be reading verses 8 through 13 uh, this morning. I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as I read our text, verses 8 through 13. Follow along and be blessed by the hearing of God's word. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These men revile things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, for they for, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. <clears throat> we have been working our way through this little yet profoundly relevant letter of Jude. Let me remind you a little bit about Jude. He's the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we look at verse 1 and Jude's statement, he does not first appeal to his familial relationship to Jesus. He says, first of all, that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ before he identifies himself as a brother of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant there means slave. He recognizes that Jesus is his master. He recognizes that he owes Jesus his allegiance. According to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9, we read that there was a time when Jew did not believe in who Jesus was. <clears throat> it says there that he simply, his brothers were not believing in him. They did not accept him as the Messiah, as the promised one, the coming one. But something took place in Jude's life, and we have every evidence to, to suggest that the, the thing that took place that convinced Jude of the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and the promised Messiah was when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. And not only did Jude believe that, but I want to encourage you that when you believe in the resurrection, there should be this sense of desire, this motivation to become a voice. And Jude became a voice in the early church, a profound voice in the early, early church, so much so that we have one of his letters and we're studying it together this morning. Jude is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians, not unlike you and me this morning. He's writing to Christians that are, are in interesting political times. Sound familiar? He's writing to Christians who, whose very faith is under attack. Sound familiar? These are those who had fellowshiped in little congregations, and he's writing at a time when specifically Christianity was enduring the intense attacks, political attacks from Rome 
as well as very aggressive spiritual infiltration from men that we refer to as apostates, those who had defected from true biblical faith, and they were now in the church. And they were not simply sowing seeds of false teaching within the church, those things that we might refer to as, as heresies or deviations from the truth, but what we refer to as apostasy, which is an outright rejection of the truth. This isn't somebody who thinks, I'm just going to take a different take on, on what the scriptures say about something. This is someone who says, I know what the scripture says, and I'm going to undermine it intentionally with the intent of drawing other people away from the truth as revealed in scripture. While it may be hard to believe the bulk of false teaching Jude addresses as having come into the church centered on this kind of apostasy. And Jude describes it, if you'll look with me there in verse 3, he describes it, excuse me, verse 4, he describes it this way, as those who were denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being in a church, being in a service like this, supposedly under the Christian banner, and yet the preachers are denying the lordship of Christ, denying the responsibility of believers to obey his commands. That's what Jude is getting after. There were those standing in the so-called pulpits, undermining the words of Christ and the deities of, a deity of Christ, and they were proclaiming that you could live a lifestyle of licentiousness, there in verse 4, filthy, loose, immoral behavior not fitting the position of a child of God. This is the context in which Jude writes this letter. And he issues a call that we've been, been examining. It's a call to arms. It's, it's a call to fight. It's a call to exhort believers to fight for the truth in the midst of intense spiritual warfare and that call is found back up in verse 3. This is a reminder where he says, Contend earnestly, agonize for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And so we are reminded that the living out of the Christian faith is not always and is in fact not generally easy. If you think living for Christ is easy, you have not understood what it means to live for Christ. Christ put it this way. That if anyone would come up after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To take up your cross means that you must die. To take up your cross means something of yourself is being put to death in order to follow Christ. And the last time I checked, I, I don't, my flesh doesn't like doing stuff like that. We have our routines, we have our ways, we have our opinions. And you know what? Ultimately in Christ, your opinion does not matter. I'm not up here to tell you my opinion of the word of God. I'm here to tell you what God, God's word says. That's why Christ came. And living for Christ means not my will, but your will be done. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. He died for me so I might die to myself to live for him. Church history confirms the reality that living for Christ is not easy. We must always be mindful that sin hates righteousness 
that error despises truth and that the flesh of which we all still possess is opposed to the things of the Spirit of God. You and I live in a constant state of warfare internally and externally. We have the pressures from within and the pressures from without. Apart from the younger generation, most of us have lived in a period of human history that has been some of the most tolerant for the proclamation of the gospel and the promotion of some semblance of godly living. I remind you that we are entering a time that shocks some of us in the older generation as Christian morals are being thrown off and as we witness some of the most overt, depraved, and degenerate means of living that we could ever imagine. And yet, that's the history of the culture the church has always lived in. What we have experienced as the older generation of Christians is really the anomaly. And so when the church calls out sin in such a culture, the culture responds not with, oh, okay, we repent. It responds with disdain. It, it responds with disgust and with an attitude that seeks the very demise and the destruction and the silencing of any group that would dare stand between them and the chosen form of sin. And when the government is bent on protecting the degenerate lifestyles, the church becomes not only a political target, but also a spiritual target. It is for such a reason as this that we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Listen how Peter addresses this amongst Christians who are undergoing political attack and spiritual attack. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be shocked. Do not be confused at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange, some foreign, some, something that you couldn't even imagine should be happening is happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Christ came and he proclaimed what? The truth of God. How was it received? Not very well. Did people love him for it? Not most of them. What did it result in? His death. And so to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, to the degree that your life is lining up with Christ's life, and you are recognizing that, again, uh, sin hates righteousness, keep on rejoicing so that you, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Beloved, many of us are guilty of considering persecution, suffering for Christ, rejection because of Christ as being something strange. And we need to repent of that. It's not strange. It is what is said in Scripture to be true for believers. For the span of church history, rightly living for Jesus has come largely at a cost. Enemies from without and within the church have arisen, seeking to do their diabolical master, the devil's bidding. Rather than despair, rather than being overwhelmed by such attacks, such attacks ought to incite within us great praise. Why? Because we stand upon the promise of Jesus Christ. We stand upon God who came to this earth, who made this promise to us if we are part of his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I either believe that Jesus is bigger 
than the devil, that greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world, or I must shrink back in shame. I must be quiet. I must be overwhelmed. But that's not what Jesus has called us to be. The language that we hear in this text and in some of the verses that I've shared, the gates of Hades, the fiery ordeal, the sufferings of Christ, contending earnestly for the, the purity and the content of the faith, all remind us that we have been and we will continue to be in a battle for the truth. We, beloved, are engaged in a spiritual battle for the assurance of our own souls as well as for the hearts and minds of people. And to the extent that we are engaged in contending for the faith, the greater our desire to stand firm in the solid doctrines of Scripture, the, there is a counter-strike being orchestrated by a threefold axis of evil. And that threefold axis of evil, you know well, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And may I remind you that the greatest of those enemies is not the world and it's not the devil. It's our own flesh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all intent on one thing, rejecting the truth, somehow perverting the truth, rendering the truth null and, uh, null and void in the lives of the believers. Do you understand your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking just any one of you to devour? What will he devour? He will take your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ and he will chew it up and spit it out so that when people look at your life, they will say there is no power in Christ. Look at how that one has crumbled. And so we're called to stand firm. We're called to contend earnestly. And the question is how? How are we doing? For clarity's sake, let me take a moment to define for you the difference between an apostate and a heretic. This came up in our discussion on Thursday night. We're speaking largely of apostates, but we wanted to define in a simple way what is the difference? An apostate, beloved, is a person who once held to a true doctrine of Christianity, but has fully rejected it. It is a person who is not trying to reconcile the scriptures in any way. They're simply outward. They're just simply saying this is a wrong belief altogether. The heretic is a person who seeks to add some foreign or false teaching to his understanding of Christian doctrine. He's trying to stay within the Christian circle by just tweaking or changing something. So one has left the faith entirely. One is changing the faith, trying to stay intact. Therefore, a person who once believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, yet now rejects what the Bible teaches about the three in one, is an apostate. If a person teaches that the worship of angels is necessary, as necessary as the worship of Jesus Christ, that's heresy. They haven't sought to leave yet. They're simply tweaking something within Scripture. It is possible and not unusual for a person to be both apostate and heretical. I would dare say that heresy taken to its final conclusion will lead you to apostasy, to a rejection 
Generally speaking, the adding of any extra biblical idea to the scripture, a heresy, will lead you away from the faith. And so, I say to you, the Roman Catholic Church is both heretical and apostate. They've allowed in foreign false teachings, heresies, as well as rejecting truths that she once held that's apostasy. The Bible teaches that scripture alone is the only rule for all faith and practice. But the Roman Catholic Church claims that the proclamations of a pope, a sinner, and the traditions of the church are to be treated and venerated with equal esteem as scripture as a means to godliness. That is a rejection of what the Bible teaches as sola scriptura and therefore is apostasy. In addition to the worship of Christ, the Roman Catholic Church has added the worship and veneration of Mary, which started as a heresy, something that they did not find in Scripture, but has turned into practical apostasy. As you see around the world in the Roman Catholic Church, not uh, uh, you almost see them worshiping Mary rather than Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church seeks to undermine biblical Christianity, not with obvious an obvious frontal assault, but with careful, deliberate, and veiled attacks using the same lingo that biblical Christianity would, only changing its meaning. It uses heresy to cunningly lead people away from the knowledge of God and from the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is apostasy. I share this because as we look at Jude 8 through 13, we've entered into a portion of the letter that seeks to give an account of what present-day apostates, those who are, are seeking to draw people away from God and Christ, what does that look like? Their teachings will often be a combination of heresies, false teachings added to the truth, and apostasies, the rejection of historic orthodox teaching of Scripture. Apostates are resolved to leading people down a path that is contrary to faith in Christ, a biblical faith, and how faith in Christ reveals itself a biblical means of living. What we find in Jude's account here will be true of apostates regardless of whether they're found in the first century or the 21st century. In verses 8 through 13, we, found, uh, we find at least 20 characteristics of apostates. And for convenience, I've grouped these characteristics into four categories, the first of which we looked at last week, the deceptive authority of the apostates in verses 8 through 9. In those verses, the key idea is that apostates always reject the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they reject the word of God as the only, the sole authority uh, upon which we base our faith and practice. So if you're thinking about a Christian cult, they may use the Bible, but you'll find that the leader is saying, you need to listen to my authority. And whatever I say, even if it seems to contradict the scripture, you will follow me. That is a rejection of, the, of sola scriptura. Jude lists a number of ways in which the rejection of God's word reveals itself. The apostates here, it says that they, they will appeal to dreams. They will live in ways imp of impurity rather than purity. They will refuse to put themselves under God-given authorities and church leaders. And they will even go so far as to speak against or speak evil of God's messengers, most notably angels. Well, this morning we want to pick this back up, and we're going to consider the second group of descriptions 
uh, by which Jude gives us this account of apostates. Not only do they appeal to a deceptive authority, a different authority, but they will also reveal themselves in their debased attitude. Look at verse 10. They're debased attitude. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Now, what on earth is Jude getting at? There's a lot packed in there. In verse 10, we are presented with some of these attitudes that will be true of apostates, things that govern their attitudes are ultimately debased. That means they're, they're corrupt. Interestingly, the picture Jude gives here is that the mindset of an apostate cannot even said to be human. The attitude of an apostate cannot even be said to be human. He likens the mindset of an apostate to what? If you're using like a new King James or a King James, it's a brute beast, an animal, an unreasoning Animal. And so the big idea of this verse is that apostates, ultimately, their attitude is, I will seek to erase what is genuine, true humanity. Do we live in a culture that is trying to erase what is true humanity? We see apostasy running rampant in our so-called scientific community, in our medical community, in our, in our uh, educational communities. But in our text, this is revealed in two ways, this idea that they, are, uh, they have this, this mindset to erase all true humanity. And, and the first way in which it reveals itself is that they are spiritually ignorant. Now, I know that comes not as a shock. If, if people are promoting transhumanism, if people are, are trying to, to, to erase the idea and concept of, of uh, two genders, well, we would say that they must be ignorant of what scripture says and that's exactly what we see at the beginning of verse 10 but these men revile the things which they do not understand now note that jude calls attention once again to these men literally in the greek it says these ones and i say that because it's making us recall those who had in the previous verses been shown to put on display unbelief in verse 5 rebellion in verse 6 sexual perversion in verse 7, and now a dependence upon a different authority other than God and his word in verses 8 and 9. Jude says, in addition to this, apostates revile the things which they do not understand. Now, the verb revile means they speak evil against, they slander, they seek to put down uh, put down and particularly speak profanely of sacred matters, including God himself. They're seeking to, to lighten the load, to, to, uh, uh, to suppress the truth. The verb revile is the same word as found back in verse 8 that we considered last week, that these are the ones who revile or speak evil against or put down angelic majesties. In the same way, these men, we read, these men speak against things which they do not understand. Isn't that the way it is? If I don't understand something, I'll just demonize it. If I can't understand, why would anybody believe the Bible, an archaic book that should have no relevance to us whatsoever? It's all myth. Well, how do you know it's myth? Well, I'm just going to say it's myth because then, then I can make it look like you're really dumb. You're really uneducated for following it. And so here's this, this putting down. 
Jude goes on to inform us that such ones as these are spiritually ignorant, speaking out against, and he says, things they do not understand. They're ignorant of something. Oh, I pray that we would not be found ignorant in this group. These men are ignorant. That is, they do not grasp the depth and the wonder of spiritual truth because they are in the words of verse 19. We made mention of this last week. If you look at verse 19, why would they be unable to grasp spiritual things? Because they are devoid of the spirit. They are spiritually empty. They cannot conceive of such things. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. If you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not received of his spirit, you are spiritually ignorant. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, that is an unregenerate, unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You need the Spirit of God in order to understand the things of the Spirit. Apostates do not have that. They were never believers. They are not believers, no matter how well-sounding they are. What, let me tell you what apostates are. Apostates are generally some of the smartest and most clever people you will ever meet. Apostates are generally well-read in many subjects, and yet they speak of things, spiritual truths, in a derogatory way because they cannot understand them. But just because they are spiritually ignorant does not mean that they are always easy to spot. Being clever, they use a lot of the same language and the same lingo, and you need to listen carefully to not only the words they say, but what they begin to give as definitions, because they will change things. Sadly, because they're not always easy to spot, they're found as seminary professors. They're standing in the pulpits of churches. In fact, I now... I'm going to make a statement. So this is I, not the Lord speaking. But a lot of reasons why megachurches are megachurches is because they're not speaking the truth. They're not speaking of things that they understand spiritually. They're appealing to a whole different, a whole different motive. These people may have multiple initials and accolades on their diplomas. They may be gifted in the ability to speak in classrooms and, again, from, from behind a pulpit about the Bible and Christian belief and in matters of eternal significance. And yet I tell you this, that the godliest janitor cleaning up the most horrific and putrid of messes in, in some bathroom, the most godly janitor knows more about the things of God than these men who are apostates. As we noted in verse 4, such apostates are said to be crafty. They creep in unnoticed. They slither in. They find their way. They, one of the char characteristics of these persons is that they are often the possessors of great charisma and charm. They are those who are witty and polished and smooth, and they project an attitude and a sense of having deep learning and scholarship, and people are drawn to that. They will claim to be the guardians of deep mysteries, 
and this makes them dangerous as unsuspecting students become enamored with their supposed insights and look upon them for spiritual guidance and enlightenment, but they're being led down a path of destruction. Rather than giving to their students the living bread of Christ, they, they give to them nothing more than stones. Apostates are nothing more than ministers of the deep things of Satan. One commentator has said that apostates employ wickedness under a form of godliness cunningly managed. Let me say that again. Apostates employ wickedness under a form of godliness cunningly managed. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false prophets masquerading as ministers of light. So crafty is their art that few in their audience realize that they are apostates or that such apostates find the basic doctrines of Christianity, which they think they're hearing. The one who's teaching them finds such teachings as childish and repulsive. The doctrines that we hold dear, they utterly reject, declaring them to be too simplistic and too foolish and outdated and not relevant for the present age. Apostates are careful when they first begin their teaching, seeking to find tenure in the classrooms and commands in the pulpit and pews and the leadership of the church. But once they're in place, they become increasingly open in their attacks on Orthodox Christianity. And some of the words that you might hear from them is that there is a, a new teaching. There's a new perspective. There's this new philosophy or one that we've heard more recently. Here are some new tools by which we might interpret the Bible. All of which chip away, brethren, at sound biblical doctrines of the church. Doctrines that the church has held for 2,000 years. The faith Jude says, which was once for all handed down to the saints. I began my university career at the University of California at San Diego. And one of my first classes was Humanities 101. And one of the first things that you studied in Humanities 101 were the foundations of Western civilization. And so we went straight to the Bible and the Old Testament. The professor, Jewish by birth, professor who was Jewish by raised in Jewish tradition said that he had rejected his upbringing in that class as a young believer I was confronted with the assertion that the first five books of Moses were not actually written by Moses at all but were an elaborate patchwork of documents stitched together by some crafty priests who promoted their own authority the professor taught that Moses a man was a myth that the creation account was a myth that creation of Adam and Eve and the presence of a talking serpent and the fall of man, those are all myths. There was no global flood, no ark, no man named Noah. I'm just reading this, the first 11 chapters of my Bible going, well, what do you believe if none of this is worth a flip? According to my professor and to those who uphold such assertions, the Bible borrowed, the Bible plagiarized other ancient accounts. This man was apostate. Having rejected what's he what he once believed about the Bible and was now cunningly leading others down his path of rejection. Like their counterparts of old present day apostates reject the Bible's teaching that Jesus was virgin born. I promise you if you hear a Christian a supposed Christian say he does not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ that's apostate. 
They claim that all the supposed miracles of Christ can be logically explained. I can logically explain them. God did it. End of story. They regard as ludicrous that Jesus could feed 5,000 with a young boy's lunch. They reject that Jesus ever really walked on water, but he just made it look like he did because there was some reef that he knew about. They claim that Jesus did not die an atoning death, that he was a man who lived before his time, certainly a martyr in his own eyes for some cause. And so apostates reject the idea of a literal bodily resurrection from the dead. They claim that such was just a convenient rumor spread by his disciples in order, them, in order for them to establish their authority in a new religion. Apostates will claim that Christianity was the brainchild of a, of a heretical Jew named Saul whose teachings were actually fundamentally different from that of the primitive teachings of Jesus. According to apostates, much of the Bible comes from non-biblical sources, and they decry as ri ridiculous the whole idea of what we've referred to as verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, the words plenary to all parts, are actually from the mouth of God, that God intentionally gave his word to us, and they mock the claim of biblical inerrancy, that the Bible, being the work of God, the Holy Spirit, is without error. Any person, beloved, who holds to any of these concepts, claiming they are backed by the scholarship of higher criticism, are those who have no faith and therefore seek to destroy faith in others. These are apostates. Apostates are spiritually dead. They are truly the blind leading the blind. They are proclaimers of a social gospel rather than the biblical gospel, and they speak against that which they do not understand, and they do not understand this book. And so I ask you one pointed question. Do you understand this book? And I'm not asking you to give me some doctrinal thesis about the complexities of the Bible, but do you take God at his word that what he said is so? What is the biblical gospel? Beloved, the Bible teaches us that man was created holy, that he deliberately disobeyed God's command and his divine imperatives and fell into sin. And as a result of that fall, Adam's descendants come into the world in a state of spiritual death, that which we refer to as total or radical depravity. God never pushes a sinner into further sin, but on the contrary, our God exerts all influence by which which should induce rational beings to repent and to seek his sanctifying grace as found in the work and person of his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, sin is irrational, and so they can't, and they won't. But for those that God works on, all who sincerely repent and seek his grace, and that by the exercise of God's mighty power, vast multitudes of those who otherwise would have continued in their sin have been brought to salvation because of God. And his grace. Apostates have no understanding of such things. Apostates do not understand the new birth. They do not understand the necessity of baptism. They do not understand the need to, of the indwelling, filling, and atoning power of the Holy Spirit. They do not understand the word of God or being, uh, because being without the spirit of God, they cannot appraise those things which are spiritual. Truly, 
It is what is written of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul writes that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. An apostate is a person who was once acquainted with biblical truth and may be quite knowledgeable about biblical truth, but he has rejected that truth and is considered doubly blind because he is unregenerate. He is held in bondage to his natural spiritual blindness. Their willful spiritual ignorance will bring them to eternal destruction. And to read about them, as we'll see as we close the message in a moment, we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we are doing everything to avoid being on the path of an apostate. So they are spiritually ignorant. But not only are they spiritually ignorant, we see next that they are solely instinctive. They not only reject the truth, but we learn that they operate not by the spirit of God, but rather by their own instinct. Notice what this says at the end of verse 10. And these things, which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Jude is indicating to us that there is a natural drift that takes place in the mind and the behavior of, of an apostate. If you wander from the word of God, you will drift into this. He moves towards an open ridicule of spiritual things, things beyond the ability for human science to explain, things as far removed from the thoughts of the unsaved man as human thoughts are removed from those of a worm. Jude indicates that there are things that people can know, things that fall within the reach of the natural mind. To be sure, with time and talent, anyone can master biblical languages. There are many apostates who know biblical Hebrew and Greek and other languages. They can understand archaeology and geology and history. And while so many can be enamored with the conglomeration of natural knowledge, Jude says, in effect, so what? So what if you know so many things about this world? So what if you know all the languages? Even unreasoning animals know certain things, Jude writes, by instinct. The point being made is that apostates operate not on genuine reason, which isn't that what they always want to say? I'm logical. I've thought this. I'm a good skeptic because I can think through where's the proof for God. Well, where's your proof that God is not there? I mean, they, they have this this sense that they're reasoning, but they have no genuine reasoning as as they and others assume, but rather according, they think according to their own, in this text, the word of God says their own intuitive musings out of their own unholy instincts and lust. They're operating by their own lusts. Jude says that they are unreasoning. That word literally means without a word. They have no words by which to to describe this. The very attitudes are debased. They're low. They're animalistic. According to the word of God, they are like dumb animals who are incapable of speaking reasonably because they cannot reason spiritually. Hence the need for us to be in the word of God, 
motivated by the Spirit of God. It does not matter how much education such a person has or how deeply philosophical they believe their teachings to be or how marvelous their mystical visions and insights claim to be. According to the word of God, anyone who does not, is not able to reason spiritually reasons like a brute animal. A careful reading, by the way, of Romans chapters 1 through 3. Have you ever just read Romans 1 through 3? What's Romans 1 through 3 about? It gives a graphic detail of what an apostate society looks like. Read Romans 1 through 3 and, answer the qu- or and, and consider the, the, the thesis. Here is what an apostate culture looks like. In Romans 1, 21 through 22, we read that apostates once, what, knew God. But they refused to honor him as God. They rejected him as God. That's the definition of an apostate. They do not give thanks to God. They do not glorify God. Apostates are ungrateful for the measure of light that God has made available to them. How much light has God given to them? Well, in verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been not just seen, clearly seen, revealed, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What did they do with the light of creation? They rejected it. That's the definition of what? An apostate. Because they have rejected this God-given light, we read that they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, so much wiser than us, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and creepy crawly creatures. I added that for emphasis. In verse 25, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They rejected the truth and they received the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is like an unreasoning animal that you can take what is before you and reject it. Beloved, a rejection of the truth of God, whether through general revelation what we learn from God through creation or the rejection of special revelation that has come to us through scripture and most especially through the very life and person and work of Jesus our Lord will always lead a person to being less than human. Read Romans 1 and by the time you get to the end you will say this is not human. Such people are left to their sin, to reason like animals, to reason by instinct rather than by divine inspiration. And for those who follow such a path, we find uh, God's consequence revealed in Romans 124, 126, and 128 as three times God says, if you want to live this way, I will give you over to living this way. You will live in your corruption and your corruption will destroy you. 
God allows those who fall away and reject his revealed truth to fall prey to their own corrupted thinking. Now look back at Jude. Isn't that exactly what Jude says at the end of verse 10? By these things, by thinking this way, by having this attitude, by these things, they are what? Destroyed. And the, uh, the Greek literally reads, they are corrupted. They are corrupting themselves by having such bad attitudes towards God. The apostate, by his own lying, by his own deceiving heresies, brings upon himself corruption, uh, corruption and thinking that leads to the very judgment and wrath of God. Such persons, Jude has said, you say, where are these people? Jude says they're where? In the church. Are there apostates among us? We pray not. We know we're speaking of the church in, in its broadest sense, but they're in the church. They're unnoticed. Why? Because we in our flesh are enamored by education. We're enamored by their culture. We're enamored by their polished abilities. But in the final analysis, we're reminded that they are just natural men. Again, devoid of the spirit of God and thus able, unable to grasp and rightly communicate and rightly live out godliness. Such a one as this lives only in a fallen nature. They, they live in the fallen nature that re, they've received from Adam. Adam, whom they will tell you, is a myth. But they live in his fall. Apostates, rather than being godly as they pretend to be, whether found in a classroom or a church pulpit, the apostate is a lost man under the influence of a fallen human nature. They may function as rational and reasonable human beings in other areas of thinking and life, because they are, but because they are not spiritual, not regenerated, not believing, the, Jude says they are corrupting themselves. And Jude summarizes the end result of such a life, such teaching, such influence. It says they corrupt themselves as they hurl themselves towards the very wrath of God. The debased attitude of the apostate is one who rails against truths of which he knows nothing. In the end, his own inborn natural Corruptions will prove to be his undoing, his eternal undoing. Now let me close by reminding us that we all have a propensity to fall away from the living God. Your flesh does not desire the things of God. Our flesh, often influenced by the world, even by the devil, lurking to take, is lurking to take root in one or more areas of our lives. David found himself in such a time and state. He, in his penitential psalms, he speaks as one who had forsaken what he knew to be right. He fell away from what he knew to be right. He was taken in by his own follies and his own lusts and his own instincts, and he brought destruction upon himself. But unlike apostates who continue to reject the truth, what did David do? As a believer, he cries out, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit 
in me. What's a steadfast spirit? One that will not fall away from the living God. Let me offer you some means as we close by which we might avoid falling into the attitude of apostasy. Yes, you and I could fall into an attitude of apostasy. That's not mean that we will reject everything, but we can be influenced by this enough to have our testimonies hurt or, or um, just c- considering us uh, putting us on the sideline. These practical applications are actually adapt, adopt, adapted by John Owen, the great prince of Puritan theologians, and I can have you consider carefully and put into practice these steps. And the first one is this. Beloved, we need to have a preeminent concern with the glory of God. If that is not what you are most considering when you live out your life, you're missing the opportunity to delight yourself in the things of the Lord. But you are also putting yourself on a potential path of falling away from God. Delight yourself in the glory of God. Meditate upon his glory and the current state of the church. And may this lead us to mourn what we've lost. We've lost the sense of the wonder of the glory of God. Do you know what the word glory means in the Old Testament? The, the, The word literally means heavy. Do you consider the heaviness, the weight of God as being the most heavy, weightful thing in your life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us of this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, the most mundane things you will do in your life, eating and drinking, and then add everything else, do it all so that God is glorified, that you pronounce the greatness and wonder and majesty of God. Keep that as your forefront, and it will be that which keeps you from falling away from the living God. In Ephesians 5.27, we read that he, Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God's goal for us in the church is to be filled with glory, a reflective glory of the glory of Christ. Do you have that as your preeminent concern, the glory of God? Number two. Be in continual prayer. This is not far removed, of course, from our study back in 1 Thessalonians. Be in continual prayer. Let us pray always for the restoration of the primacy of proper doctrine within the church. Let us be a people who so desire, earnestly contend for the faith. How do you earnestly contend? How do I agonize? How much do you pray that what you think about God is right? How much do you pray, God, help me dig into your word so that I might know you and know you better? Can I tell you a sign of potentially falling away from the living God that you're not going to like me saying is when you think you know enough about God that you don't need it anymore. That's a subtle lie that's making you fall away. When you think you know enough about God, you are falling away. So what do you do? Pray, God, keep me. Keep me focused on you. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 5.18 through 20, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for how many of the saints? All of them. We don't want one person's testimony in this place to be diminished by the flesh or the world or the devil. 
So we pray for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for one another that we would be sound in doctrine. Pray for those who are proclaiming the truth that they would be sound in doctrine so that we might be rightly edified. Pray for such things. Number three, there's just five of them. Practice constant testimony. What do I mean? Practice constant testimony. Beloved, others must see and hear your open and resolved profession of and contending for the faith and the truth of the gospel. You need to be telling people, reminding yourself and one another, I am with the Lord. I stand for Christ. I profess his truth. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's your testimony. What do people see in any given day? I would ask you, just take a day of your life from last week and consider it. Did people see Christ in me? Pray and practice a constant testimony. First Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make an, a, a defense, to give an apology to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I will so set Christ apart that people know that they can ask me, why do you think that? Why do you live this way? Number four, keep careful watch over your heart and life. Keep careful watch over your heart and life. We must remember that our hearts are deceitful and wicked and will lead us from the inerrant and holy word of God. Proverbs 4, 23, 24. Uh, if you don't have these highlighted in your Bible, highlight these in your Bible. If you don't have these memorized, at least in the, in the idea, memorize them. What is this? Watch over your heart with all diligence. I dare say we would say in here, well, I watch over my heart. But Solomon didn't say just watch over your heart. He said do it with maximum effort, with all diligence. For from it, Flow the springs of life, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Don't allow that into your heart and into your life. Why? Because the heart is more deceitful than any than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Finally. Beware of the world. Aren't you glad you came today? Beware of the world. We can run around all day now and say, beware of the world. We must be careful not to allow the customs and habits of our times to indiscriminately infiltrate our lives and the church. It's so easy to do. The internet and TV and movie and the music of the age. It can infiltrate, and it can begin to change your thinking. What is the only thing that you are supposed to have influence your thinking, people? The word of God. 
Let me ask you, is that true for you? Or do you have competing influences? 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And by the way, that means the world system, what the world is considering as in vogue, as what's hip, what's cool. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. Everything you think that is cool, everything that you think is wonderful, every, every TV show that you watch that you just can't wait until the next episode comes, it's all gone. You will not talk about the latest episode of The Mandalorian. You will not talk about the great past that was caught by whatever team you're rooting for in heaven. I promise you that's not the subject. What will be the subject is Christ. And so this world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And what's the will of God? Watch over your heart with all diligence. Pray without ceasing. Keep yourself from sexual immorality. Beloved, apostates are here. They're all around us. They're in the church and they're outside of the church. Their attitudes will permeate your own thoughts unless you are diligent to contend earnestly for the faith. And you've been given five means by which you might begin to contend earnestly. May we do so to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the, the reminders of your word, the warnings of your word, that living this Christian life is not easy. Not only will we face persecution and ridicule and be mocked for believing in the one true God and what he has expressed in his word, but, Father God, our own flesh will resist at times. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves slowly, subtly moving away from you. So, Father God, I pray that the attitude of apostates will not be found within us. May our attitude be that of Christ Jesus. May our attitude be that of Christ who said he came to glorify the Father. May that attitude be ours that says we want to, to not speak anything but that which the Father has given us to speak, to not do anything but that which the Father has given us to do. And so, Father, we know that the great call for what we are to do is to love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And when we do that, we will love others. We will love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Father, I pray that you will keep us from apostasy, that you will protect your church from the influences of apostates, that we might be those who are characterized as believing as those who are contending earnestly, as those who desire to see the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed and lived out to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.